Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump right into uh, resuming chapter 3 on on God's decree. Let's pray. Our holy and gracious God, holy, holy, holy are you, clothed in majesty and glory and dominion. Your wisdom is beyond our comprehension. We delight and we rest in your sovereign decree, your foreknowledge of all things. Uh, Father, I pray that you will help us uh, to be able to understand, to be able to articulate clearly uh, what your word teaches to us about your decree, and grant to us the discernment to, to not to go beyond what you have revealed to us about yourself, about the nature of your decree Father, will you help us to delight in what you have revealed and, and help us to avoid meddling into things that are not ours and rest in the secret things that belong to our most wise and most good God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we look at paragraph 2 today, and I, I considered combining a couple of paragraphs, but the more I looked at paragraph 2 and then looking ahead, I, I hope probably to combine paragraphs 3 and 4, but paragraph 2, I think, needs some, uh, some, the opportunity to stand on its own, as it were, or to stand next to the, the paragraph we've already looked at, and, as, and, and then also looking back at chapter 2 in our confession. Because as, as we've talked about before, each chapter is going to build on the one before it, and we need to read the confession, uh, Dr. Jim's language is sideways. And I think it's a helpful concept to remember to, re- to read it sideways. What we're going to find in today's paragraph, the, the key piece here, is that God's eternal decree is not conditioned in any way. It's not conditioned in any way. It stands on its own because God stands on his own. The, the decree of God is a reflection of, in fact, it's grounded in the eternal being, the very nature of God. And so what we, we're going to go back and look at, what do we confess about God himself? Because that informs how we understand his decree from eternity. So God's eternal decree is not conditioned in any way, but instead it's grounded in his own eternal mind, its own eternal purpose. So let's read uh, together paragraph 2 of chapter 3 in our confession. And, and then I want to look at this outlined in three, thrown into three headings. The subject here is the foreknowledge of God, but what do we we confess, what do we know in the Scriptures about this foreknowledge? And first of all, is that the foreknowledge of God exists only in Himself. And it's crucial to to remember that, uh, that the, the foreknowledge of God rests, it abides only in Himself. But secondly, the foreknowledge is unique to God alone. And so we're, these, these are, are similar and somewhat overlapping concepts, but, but I want to separate them a little bit to, to um, illuminate, illuminate those further. And then thirdly, the foreknowledge of God is wholly independent of his creatures or his creation. The foreknowledge of God is wholly independent of his creatures. So let's read the text of paragraph 2, chapter 3. Although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass... Upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not decreed anything, because he foresaw it as future, or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. I want to. The reason I want to outline it the way that, that I do is because the language here is a little. It's 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 quaint. It's a little bit antiquated, and so some of the clauses we would probably order them differently than they did, although we would mean exactly the same thing. So, although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass. So we start with a conditional statement, although this this is true. God knoweth whatsoever may or or can come to pass upon all, all supposed conditions. In other words, all the various variables, God knows those as well. Yet, hath he not decreed anything? Or in other words, he has not decreed anything as a consequence of his foreknowledge. And it's a critical distinction that the Reformers made. He knows all things not because 
He simply observed what he made and saw what he made and how it operated and therefore decreed on that basis. Rather, the decree is based on his eternal wisdom. It's rested and grounded in his person and his knowing preceded his doing. His knowing preceded his creative activity. And we're going to explain, I'm going to try to explain that a little bit further. But first of all, let's consider this fact. The foreknowledge of God exists only in God himself. It is a a consequence of who he is, his eternal being, the eternal Godhead. If you want to turn back into chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity, and we're going to look again at paragraph 2. We spent some time in this in our uh, previous section of our study. But here it reads, God, having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest, so in other words, there is, for us, as time-bound creatures, we always think in terms of past, present, and future. That, that's just the way our minds work, because that's the way the world in which we live works. But for God, there is no past or present or future. Everything is present. He sees all things at one time. There, he exists outside of his creation. He exists outside of time, so he's not bound by those things. In his sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. See, there's there's a key statement. His knowledge is not only infinite, it's not finite, it is not fallible, it is not dependent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. In, in the, the very mind of God, there are no variables. There are no contingencies. There are no what-ifs. And of course, in our lives, we, we live with variables and contingencies and what-ifs all the time. Uh, in our ordinary lives, ordinary in our homes, in our ordinary vocations, we deal with those what-if things all the time, don't we? Okay, what if this happens, then I need to be prepared for that. If this other thing doesn't come to pass then I've got to be prepared in this way. But it is not so with God. It is not so with God. And one of the the, the foundational principles that we considered when we looked at the doctrine of God and the Holy Trinity is that he is utterly unlike us. And we can say, it's right for us to say, as long as we do it in in a sort of nuanced way, that we are like God. All men are created in the image of God. So we have a a likeness of him in some respect. For those who are in Christ, we have been remade and are being conformed progressively more and more into the very image of Christ, who is the perfect image of the Father. And we have a promise laid upon us that one day, when he returns, we will be glorified and have a body like unto Christ's. And so in that way, we become more like God. We We never become God. And, and we are not wholly like God, but there are narrow ways that we can say we are like God. But we can never, ever, ever, ever say that God is like us. We can never say that. God is never like his creatures. And so we have to confess that there's nothing in him that's contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels and all his works and in all his commands, to him is due from angels and men whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the Creator, and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. So when we come to the decree of God, it rests upon those things we have already confessed about the nature, the being, the essence of God. What is his essential godness? Well, it is that his knowledge is not contingent. 
His knowledge is not dependent. He is in no way looking to his creatures for wisdom or for feedback or for variables or for what-ifs. God is wholly independent of his his creatures, of his creation, even of those made in his own image. Listen to Jim Renahan. He makes a very helpful statement. He says, this knowledge does not precede or inform the decree. See, the knowledge that God has does not precede his, or the, the, the knowledge does not precede or inform his decree. One understands why the doctrine of God is so foundational. Divine omniscience, omnipotence, simplicity, immutability, etc., are key supports to an understanding of the doctrine of God's decree. God's knowledge is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Thus, his decree shares in the same characteristics. Understanding this point goes far in solving the conundrums some use to undermine the Reformed system. See, God is not dependent. But that brings us to the second point that's confessed here. Now we're back to chapter 3 and paragraph 2. See, we start with this phrase, although God. So we have to go back and, okay, what do we confess about God himself? What do we confess about God's knowledge? Because we confess that God knoweth. So what do we know about God's knowledge? Well, then we see that we, although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath he not, or yet he has not, decreed anything because he foresaw it as future. The foreknowledge is unique to God alone. It depends upon his own perfection of nature, his perfection of being. He is immutable, he is omniscient, he is most wise. And when we contemplate this this being of God, the essence of God, we identify attributes of God from the Scriptures. The Scriptures give to us descriptions of our God. We are are told that God, for example, is love. It's not that he has the attribute of love, but that he is love. He is love justice. He is mercy. And some of those attributes of God, we can say, are communicable attributes. It means that God shares those attributes with man in a limited and finite way. So we can, for example, we can share in the attribute of God's mercy. As human beings, imperfectly, fallibly, we can display mercy to both man and beast, can't we? We can display love. Even, even the unbeliever can do this. This is, this is part of our being an image bearer. The, even, even the unbeliever has a sense of justice. This is Romans 2, right? The works of the law are written on the heart of man, and he inherently, by, by creation, knows right from wrong. That's, that's indelibly imprinted on his soul. But there are other attributes of God that theologians describe as incommunicable. They are not shareable. They are not shared with man or any other creature. And of course, some of those attributes are ones like immutability. God does not change. Well, does he share that with us? No, we change all the time. We can change our mind from this to that just I mean, in an instant. You, as you anticipate lunch in just a little while, you may have your heart set on the, the pasta, and then you see the meatballs and think, I've changed my mind. I want this instead of that. Or, God does not share his omniscience with any creature. He doesn't share his all-knowingness with any creature. And, And a necessary consequence of God's decree, resting upon his immutable and omniscient nature, is that foreknowledge is unique to himself. It's unique to himself. Well, why is this important? Throughout history, there have been false prophets that arose and said, I know the mind of God. I know the will of God. Or I know what's going to happen in the future. And God says, that isn't true. Only I know what is to come. In fact, God himself testifies that his foreknowledge is a distinguishing attribute from all other creatures, from all other so-called gods. Listen to Isaiah chapter 41. Beginning in verse 21, God is testifying here about the uniqueness of his 
godness of his deity with respect to his foreknowledge. Verse 21, set forth your case, says the Lord, bring your proofs as the king of Jacob. Let them bring them, and the pronoun them refers to the idols about which they spoke previously in the chapter. So let them bring their idols and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome to declare to use the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, and abomination is he who chooses you. You hear what he's saying? He's taunting. The Lord is taunting the Israelites in their idolatry. He says, bring them here. Bring your so-called gods. Set them before, which is kind of funny, that he has to say, bring your gods. They can't walk up, up there on their own. They can't move, they can't walk, they can't see, they can't speak. So carry them, put them in your wagon, put them in your cart, whatever you got to do, bring them here in front of me, and let them tell you what is to come. They can't do it. Why? Because they're not God. And only God can tell you what is to come. Now, Paul makes this very clear. Paul utilizes this, this reality at the Jerusalem Council. And that's, of course, recorded in Acts chapter 15. This is when the, the issue of circumcision and the issue of, of what does it mean to be a Christian in light of Jews and Gentiles in the same church together. What does it mean? Do you have to first become a Jew, take the mark of circumcision, obey all the law of Moses, and then and only then can you become a true Christian? And, of course, Paul and Peter and the other apostles argued persuasively that no, it is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, through the power of his Spirit alone, that one becomes a Christian. And Paul stands in the middle of this assembly, and he says this, All the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as, as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and listen to this, and I will restore it, and the remnant of mankind may seek, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. See, I said Paul, I meant James. James stands and says, brothers, here's, here's the God that we're, that we're dealing with here. This is the God who foretold all that would come to pass, all that we have witnessed with our own eyes, God foretold because he is God and because God alone can foretell such things. Well, well James is quoting here from various prophets. There's sort of a mashup of multiple quotes. Um, there's one from Amos, a part of that, that, that uh, quote is from Amos, parts from Jeremiah, parts from Isaiah, and a significant part comes from Isaiah 45 and verse 21. And Isaiah there, through, or through Isaiah, the Lord speaks, declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God beside me? A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. So once again, God testifies about himself that foreknowledge is his prerogative alone. There is no other. There is no one else. There's nothing contingent in his knowledge. God says, I have declared these things of old. They have come to pass just as I said, without one variable, without one failure, without one thing being left undone that I decreed. So we see that God alone may know completely whatsoever may come to pass because he is God and because he is the first cause of all things. Now, this brings us to the last main thrust of this paragraph. And it's this, that, that the foreknowledge of God is wholly independent of the creatures. I, I've mentioned that, but I think it, it bears some, some proof, some demonstration from the, from the Scriptures, that God is wholly independent of his creatures. Now, one of the footnotes, and you'll see in your copy of the, of the Confession, 
is Acts 15, verse 18, which I already quoted regarding the Jerusalem Council. But it also we have Romans 9. We have verses 11, 13, 16, and 18 regarding this divine election, divine purpose, divine foreknowledge of God, and how all things have happened just as he said. So let's turn to that, to that passage. It's a critical one. Um, sadly, it's, it's some of the critics of Reformed theology point to this and, and say this is, this is really the only proof that they have, and it's, and it's insufficient. But we, those who have uh, been blessed to see the doctrines of grace in the Scriptures will find it on every page. It's not confined to Romans 9. But this is, nonetheless, a significant passage. So I'm going to back up and read beginning in verse 6. <clears throat> Paul says in Romans 9, verse 6, It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And Paul's making the distinction between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. Not all who are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was renamed Israel, not all those who, who have the blood of Jacob, the DNA of Jacob coursing through their veins, are actually spiritual descendants of Abraham. Those who are spiritual descendants of Abraham are, are descendants by, by what means? By promise, by faith, not by blood. This is one of the errors that our, our, our dear Presbyterian brothers, I think, carry forward into their understanding of the New Covenant that, that is erroneous. We, at no time, were the true sons of Abraham sons by virtue of their genetics by virtue of who their parents were, but only by faith in the promises of God, by faith in anticipation that God would fulfill his promise to send forth a redeemer. He goes on in verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So that's what he's saying. This is by promise, not by blood. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, that's a synonym for decree, his decree or his purpose of election would stand or the purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he, who says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It does not depend upon human will or exertion or human activity, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So what we discover here is that God does not know something because he saw it, or because he foresaw it happening. No, he causes it to be. He causes a thing to happen. Now, we can illustrate this from creation itself. And so this, this concept is, is, a, is a massive concept that can make our brains hurt. But hopefully we can look at, at an example in creation and then extrapolate from that example a better understanding of what the Scriptures are teaching to us about this foreknowledge of God. <clears throat> God created all things on the basis that from eternity He knew, and from eternity He decreed all things. And in time, He caused things to be based on that decree. And we see the, the logic of that worked out in our confession. So chapter 1 is the Scriptures. That's how we know what we know about God, comprehensively, uh, infallibly, sufficiently. Number 2 
we see the script, we see God Himself, of God and the Holy Trinity. And then, of course, now we're looking at chapter 3, the decree of God. Well, how is that decree worked out in time and space? Well, two ways. Chapters 4 and 5, creation and providence. How does God exercise his decree? Well, it's in creation and in providence. His, he made all things, and then he governs all things. So we see those things worked out together. <clears throat> but it is not a fact that God created something so that he could then know that thing. But rather, he knew that thing in his own eternal mind and therefore caused it to be according to his perfect knowledge. I'm going to read you a quote from Stephen Charnock, and it's a little bit longer quote, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's older Puritan language, so bear with me. But it's very helpful to work through the, the, the good old-fashioned Puritan logic here and reasoning according to the Scriptures. The whole creation was once future, or else it was from eternity. So he said, there, there was, before time began, creation had to be future, or else it was eternal. If it began in time, it was once future in itself, else it could never have begun to be. So again, he's arguing creation is not eternal. It had a beginning. You know, contra uh, some of our astronomers and physicists, creation is not eternal. Matter is not eternal. Energy is not eternal. There was a time, a point, when God said, let it be. Charnock goes on, did he create, he knew not what, and knew not before what he should create? In other words, was God creating out of ignorance? Was God simply, you know, assembling things, creating things, forming things, speaking things into existence so that he might know them? So that he might understand and perceive how they would interact? Was he ignorant before he acted, and in his acting was what his operation would tend to? Or... Did he not know the nature of things and the ends of them till he had produced them and saw them in being? Creatures then did not arise from his knowledge, but his knowledge of them. Now, he's not making that as a statement of fact. He's saying, if you follow that argument, then that would be the conclusion you would come to. Is that creatures then did not arise from his knowledge, but his knowledge from the creature. God did not then will that his creatures should be, for he had then willed what he knew not, and knew not what he willed. I know it's confusing language, isn't it? Especially when you're not seeing it in print. Creatures then did not arise from his knowledge, but his knowledge from the creatures. God did not then will what his creatures should be, for he had then willed what he knew not, and knew not what he willed. See, if we follow that kind of logic, that God, that his knowing is dependent upon the creature, then this is the inevitable conclusion, that God didn't know what he was doing when he made the creature. That his knowledge was somehow limited in the making, and it was only upon the discovery after the creation that God came to know the thing. Well, then, of course, at that point, he wouldn't be God, would he? Charnock goes on, They, therefore, must be known, as he's talking about his creatures, the creatures, therefore, must be known before they were made and not known because they were made. He knew them to make them, and he did not make them to know them by the same reason that he knew what creatures should be before they were. He knows still what creatures shall be before they are. For all things that were in God, for all things that are, were in God, not really in their own nature, but in him as a cause. So in other words, when God made the beasts of the field, it wasn't that these beasts were, were existed in themselves or were known in themselves, but they were known in the mind of God and therefore created by the mouth of God, by the declaration and decree of God. For all things that are were in God, not really in their own nature, but in him as a cause. So the earth and heavens were in him as a model, as in the mind of a workman, which is in his mind and soul before it be brought forth into outward act. Now let me see if I can make this more accessible by way of, of an opposite illustration. 
And I said before, we have this contrast between the creature and the creator. Between man, even in the image of God, and the one who is the image, God himself. So consider in this case how much God is not like us. We have many new babies at GFBC Conference. In fact, praise the Lord, we have more on the way, right? And, and we rejoice in that. But the nature of parenthood is far different than God's creative act. And, and we even will use the terms, and we don't mean it in a, in, a, in a wholesale, literal way. We say somebody made a baby. We know how that happens. We know the biological processes. But that doesn't mean that, that we have the same creative capacity as God. But follow this through. We only know our children after we have made them. Right? I mean, because the first part of knowing is that you discover, a couple discovers they're pregnant. So there's a, there's a part of knowing that they didn't even know. There was life formed, life conceived, before there was even a knowing about the life. And then, of course, think about the progression of a pregnancy. There's a point in time when you hear a heartbeat. And thanks to modern technology, you get ultrasounds and pictures and anatomy scans. And then at some point, maybe you decide, we even get to see the sex of the child. And there's a, a progressive knowing. And then, of course, a couple, as they be able to, to, to watch the kicks and the, and the belly protrude and, and all those things that happen, all the wonderful things that happen in a pregnancy, there's a progressive knowing, isn't there? But we still don't know that child yet, do we? It, it's not until you actually hold that child in your arms for the first time that you see. What color eyes? Is there hair or no hair? What color is the hair? Does it look like mom? Does it look like dad? And, and then, of course, there's not even a full knowing then. It's an infant, can't speak, can't, can't, can't voice her heart or his heart. We, we, we have a, maybe some sense of, of personality and tendencies, but there's a progressive knowing. So we, as you know, imaging our creator in a way, in that creative capacity, we still are very limited and very finite, and all of our knowing is contingent upon the creation already happening. And we are simply observing what is made. We are observing what exists, and by the observation, we grow in our knowing. It is not so with God. It is not so with God. God knows first. And on the basis of his eternal knowing, then the forms, as David said, fearfully and wonderfully in my mother's womb. See how unlike a God we are in that respect. God is not like us. He did not create so that he could know. He did not create as a means of knowing. See, we could look at a, at a human pregnancy as, as somewhat of a means of not only producing life, but of knowing that life. So it is with all things that God hath decreed from eternity. He knew them first. And on the basis of his knowing, he created, he decreed, and he governs. Or I should say, he decreed, he created, and he governs all things. Nothing is contingent. Nothing God has decreed is conditioned upon the will or upon the response of a creator. Of a creature, I should say. Nothing is, de is dependent upon the will or the response of a creature. Now, of course, we... I'll go back to the quote that I read early on from Dr. Renahan. Understanding this point, he says, goes far in solving the conundrum some use to undermine the reform system. So sometimes the debate ends up being over Romans 9 or some other text. And, and you will see either online or sometimes in person this clash between the Arminian and the Calvinist between one who, who holds to this scriptural view of God's absolute unconditioned decree, and then various forms of either error or even all the way to big uppercase H heresy, in which the creature is placed in charge, in which God's acts are in any way contingent upon the creature. And so whether that's in the area of salvation... Again, we'll look at that next, next week.
in paragraph 3, deals with predestination or being foreordained to eternal life. And what we need to understand is this is more than a mere foreknowledge. It is not as if God simply passively looked through the corridors of time and said, ah, that one way over there is going to choose me of his own volition, of his own will, and on the basis of that, I will elect him in my son. Well, that that would undo what we've just talked about, the very nature of God, wouldn't it? And so when we think about a, a debate or a discussion or an argument for or against this decree of God, this absolute, unconditioned, non-contingent decree of God, we have to root that in God himself. Is God mutable? I mean, is God changeable? Is God all-knowing or not? Is God in any way dependent upon his his creatures or his creation? Is there anything that's contingent? Because we have to say, if if there is any contingency, that which is the contingency is God, not God. Whatever is dependent, whatever is the what if, that thing becomes God instead of God. Does that make sense? And so it's an important doctrine for us to come back again and again and again to theology proper. What do we know about God himself? Because what God does is always, always, always consistent with who he is. It cannot be any other. We will often act contrary to who we really are. We are pronounced new creatures in Christ. The, 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 the old man is dead, a new man has been raised up in his place. That's what we confess. We, we see that signified in baptism, buried with Christ in baptism, raised again to walk in newness of life. And yet, often, we act contrary to our nature, don't we? Paul says to us in Romans, reckon yourselves dead to sin, and yet sometimes we operate contrary to that, don't we? We have a new nature in Christ. In Christ, we now have a capacity that the dead man did not have, not only to obey the law of God, but to rejoice in it, delight in it, want to be uh, uh, submitted to it. And yet, as Paul testified in Romans 7, the things that I know I'm supposed to do, that's what I don't do. The things that I know I'm supposed to not do, that's what I find myself doing. Oh, wicked man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We act contrary to our nature, but God never does. God never acts or does or speaks or wills contrary to who he is. His immutable, unchangeable attributes, and particularly as we we looked at, I didn't use the term, but what we've looked at in, in this paragraph is dependent upon the aseity of God. That God is wholly independent of his creatures and of his creation. God is not dependent upon you. He's not dependent upon me. And we're going to see this worked out in, in, in today's sermon text, in Mark chapter 3, where we see there's nothing contingent here. Here's all these crowds pressing in upon Jesus. Here's, here's the, the Pharisees and the Herodians teaming up together like two you know, mafia families conspiring together. And yet, and even the demons themselves come out. Is the will of God thwarted or threatened in any way? No, because it's, it's not contingent. It's not resting upon the will of the creature. There, there's no possibility of creatures, even a crushing crowd of creatures, undoing the will of God. He has decreed all things that will come to pass. Not only that they will come to pass, but by what means and by what precise time they will come to pass. Now that begins to peek ahead into the next chapter in our confession on providence. Or two chapters ahead, I should say, on providence. How God governs all things. But these are are tied together. So again, as as you're thinking about the confession and reading through the confession on your own, think in those sideways terms. When you see something like God knoweth. You think, okay, what I already know in the confession about the knowledge of God? 
And sometimes it's even helpful, just as a tip, if you're, if you're using uh, the printed version, um, it's probably more reliable in terms of its punctuation and footnotes and some of the ones you find in an app or online. But those online ones or app are helpful in this way. You can search. You can search terms. And so you can search for a term like knowledge or knowing or just know and, and see how it's used in other places in the confession and, and see how it works sideways and see how the, the use here is built upon what happened in chapter 2 and how what happens in chapter 2 and 3 looks ahead into what happens in chapters 4 and, and 5. Because um, we see, in, in, for example, in, paragraph, or in chapter 5 of Divine Providence, in paragraph 2, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God. So we're about to make a statement based on a doctrine that, we've, that we're laying down here in chapter 3. God is the first cause. All things come to pass immutably and infallibly. Well, why? Because God is immutable and infallible. Because God's decree is immutable and infallible. So that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence. Yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingent. This is woven together like a fine tapestry, isn't it? And it's, and it's because it's rooted in God himself, who is a simple being. His attributes are not divisible. We don't look at God as the sum of all these parts. We don't take his immutability and his justice and his love and his mercy and, and add all those together like we're mixing a stew and come up with God. He's indivisible. God just is love. He is omniscient. He is justice. He is mercy. And so on. So the knowledge of God exists only in God himself. This foreknowledge of God is unique to him alone. And the foreknowledge of God is wholly independent of his creatures. And we'll look at next week in paragraphs, I I hope to do three and four together, uh, both for men and angels. God has applied this decree to his intelligent creatures, his reasonable creatures, both human and spiritual, both his are uh, human and angelic. And so this decree extends not just generally to the world, but specifically and foundationally to the salvation, the justification, to the preservation of men and even angels. Any questions about? Yeah. I believe it's exactly the same. I believe it's exactly the same. There are several different groups. That's a great question. Certainly Rome has a different understanding of, of election. Um, but we, we, they're also addressing ancient errors, uh, whether it was Pelagius, uh, the Manichaean errors, um, the... Drawing a blank. There, there were a number of historical errors already present where that, that dealt with the knowledge of God. Um, and, and so we see things like... It's, it's continued to be resurrected again and again in things like Molinism, where it's an attempt to come up with a middle way, where, where God is, he, he knows and he causes based on what Molinism stands for, middle knowledge, where God knows all things and therefore he declares them to be based on his knowing. But again, we come back to the doctrine of God, and that doesn't work. Does that make sense? Okay. Matthew.
Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it and, and we see this worked out in, in very explicit language in our, our chapter on providence, but God makes use of even the willful, sinful actions of men, but he also makes use of even the stumbles, the failures of his own people. Uh, he, he made use of Peter's betrayal uh, to, to not only to instruct us for all time, but to actually to build up and fortify and encourage Peter for further ministry. God used Peter's failure to do that. Um, so it, 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 John the Baptist, he used even the weaknesses of John the Baptist with John's doubts while he's in prison. And, and John sends his disciples to, to, to Christ and says, are you the one, or should we look for another? I mean, John's rotting in Herod's prison. It's not an unreasonable question to think, was I mistaken? Because I, I, I'm, I'm coming, because God has commanded me to preach, make way, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, if this kingdom is at hand, then why am I in Herod's prison? And so it's, it's, it's an honest question. Are you the one? I'm just double-checking, because I've bet my life on this. And, and, but that was a moment of weakness, a moment of weak faith for John. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him for it. He actually says some of the, 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 the words of highest praise that you'll read of any man come out of the, words, come out of the mouth of our Lord on that occasion, where he says there's none born among women greater than John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think ultimately, and this is my opinion, I think it, it, it stands or falls on what we believe about the doctrine of God. And modern evangelicalism has largely dispensed with theology proper. Um, we, we rush to Jesus, which, praise God, we, we want to talk about the gospel. In fact, we said everything is, is gospel-centered. It's gospel, 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 gospel. But what about God himself? Who is our triune God? And if we seek to define, we rush to Jesus and seek to define him in light of an aberrant, or deficient view of God, then we're almost inevitably going to fall. Because what happens is, we, we redefine God in our own image, rather than resting as creatures in His. And so we flip it upside down. We flip the script. And, and so I, I'm, I'm convinced that if we will, in our minds, grab hold of that idea that we can be in very narrow, nuanced ways like God, but God can never, ever, 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 never, never be like us. If we'll hold on to that, it'll prevent us from any errors. Because what happens is, whether it's evangelism or other things, we, we start to play the what-if game. We're doing that what-if game from, the, from our own human perspective. From our creaturely understanding of knowledge. From our creaturely understanding of wisdom. Rather than putting our hand over our mouth and saying, I don't know. Only God knows. Only God can know. In fact, only God can cause. And we think, my own actions can cause something to be. And, and, and hopefully even just the illustration we worked through earlier, the contrast between God creating based on his knowing and us knowing as a consequence of our creating. It's, it's, it's a wholly different paradigm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. He was an example of in 
exactly right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even even the prophetic utterances that we see in the Word of God are only because God has revealed that, only because God has said, not because it was anything in the prophet, anything in the man that caused him to know. All right. Well, let's let's stop there. Take a short short break, and we'll begin our our worship together. Father, we are grateful for who you are for the ways that you've declared yourself to be. Uh, we, we pray that while we, we confess your incomprehensibility, that your, your mind, your thoughts are far above ours, and yet your word has told us who you are, has told us about your decree, has told us about your sovereignty. And I pray that we will have the wisdom, the courage to confess that, uh, in our own minds, and even to confess that before men, and so that you will receive the full glory that you are due, and so that we will have the comfort of resting in the wise, immutable counsel of our Heavenly Father, rather than being driven and tossed to and fro by, by the waves of human actions and human emotions and human change. Uh, we praise you that while your creation is subject to all kinds of change, that you are not, and as a consequence, your decree concerning your creation and concerning your governance thereof is will never change, and that your people can rest and find comfort, find security in our triune God who is our hope, who is the sure anchor of our soul. We thank you in Christ.